Psalm 13, to the chief musician, this is a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? Having sorrow in my heart daily, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Amen to that. Okay, as I said, we're in Exodus 6. We're starting in verse number 1, going down to the 13th verse today. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will, what will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord saying, the children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall I, shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, before we start looking at the verses today, what I want to do is I want to share with you a chiasm that I found while preparing this particular uh, sermon. It comprises all of verses 6, 1 through 11. And if it seems like there's repetition in the verses that we're looking at today, it's because there is. They are specifically formed to highlight what the Lord is going to do and why. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to really quickly hand these out. Okay, so if you look at that, well, uh, well, I'm just going to show you really quickly, verses 1 through 11. A chiasm basically says something, and it turns around, and it says the same thing in the opposite direction. So you see an A at the top and an A at the bottom. It's saying the same thing in verse 1 and in verses 10 and 11. And then verse 3 will do the same thing as verse 8. And so if you follow it down, it's making what's called a chiasm. This is the finest source of literature that you will find in the Bible. There are many types of literature and Hebrew poems and uh, parallelism and all these uh, different types of patterns that the Bible makes. But the chiasms are, one, the hardest to find, and they're also the most detailed, and they also are uh, almost like a kingly way of announcing something. It, it, it's beautiful to see these. And uh, so every time that I find one, which this one was on 1 uh, uh, 5 January of this year, um, it, you can see that uh, it anchors on... Two verses, I will rescue you from their bondage, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments, okay? They say basically the same thing, rescue and redeem, hence the title of the sermon today. But that is what a chiasm does, and if you follow these, I've got a whole bunch of them that I found on uh, the internet, they're on my wonderful one website. If you follow those and you look at them, you'll understand the passage that you're looking at much, much better, because God is showing you clues of what he's doing in these particular chiasms. This chiasm here, as I said, is centered on two parallel thoughts. I will rescue you, and I will redeem you. But even more than that, it encompasses seven I wills, which are spoken by the Lord. Time is borne out that the Lord fulfilled his word exactly as he stated. The last of the seven I wills is that he would give the land of Israel to the people of Israel as a heritage. Now, some could claim that this promise failed because they've been kicked out of it twice. Or they might incorrectly state that this promise is fulfilled in the church, not Israel. But both of these would be incorrect. The land was given to Israel. When they remained obedient to the Lord, it was their land and they could use it. 
When they were disobedient, it was their land and they could not use it. It's like a parent withholding a toy from a child. The toy belongs to the child, but when they're disobedient, you take the toy away. That's kind of what we're dealing with here. But either way, regardless of whether they're in the land and using it or out of the land and possessing it but not being in it, the land has remained God's gift to Israel. Additionally, Israel is Israel, and the church is the church. Crossing those two lines only confuses one's theology. Regardless of how one feels about Israel, God's promises to them as a nation and as a people stand. Those promises, going all the way back to Abraham, are repeated in today's verses. Now is the time for them to begin to be fulfilled. We'll see this as we research out the verses ahead of us today. Our text verse today comes from Nehemiah chapter 9. It's the 32nd verse. It says this, Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. Trouble has befallen Israel, and the burdens have seemed beyond their ability to bear, even more so since Moses spoke to them the first time. And Pharaoh has already hardened his heart against Moses as well. Now he is being told once again to speak to both Israel and to Pharaoh. Without understanding the reasons for the first seeming failure, he will feel that he is wholly unqualified for the task which is set before him. We too may feel this way about the challenges that we face, but it is absolutely certain that if we are in Christ Jesus and we are being obedient to him, whatever seems to be hindering us is therefore a reason. Knowing this then must surely help take the stress off of the moment. Let us be determined that the end that we are working towards is being directed by him and our steps are carefully selected to meet his final goal. It is the continuing theme of the Bible that speaks to us, and so let us apply this truth to our lives at all times. It is a truth found in God's superior word, and so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is the land grant of Canaan, which is verses 1 through 4. The last words of the previous chapter were those of Moses. He was practically in a state of desperation over the treatment he had received from the officers who were over the people of Israel. They complained against him because he caused them to receive the same grief that the common people had suffered. We saw all of that in the previous sermons. Despite their leadership status, they had been first and foremost lumped in with their own people. It formed a picture of the future when the political and spiritual leaders of Israel will be in bed with the Antichrist, thinking that they will be safe from persecution through their faithfulness to the one world religion and the one world government, something that is beginning to happen before our own eyes in the world today. But they will find this to be false. They will be persecuted as Jews because they are Jews. And so they will come to understand that they need true deliverance as well. Their false hope in the Antichrist will be proven to be just that, false hope. After all that occurred, Moses was distraught, and he cried out to the Lord with these finishing words of chapter 5. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why have you brought this trouble on this people? Why is it that you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. That appeal to the Lord has now set up the response of the Lord, which is found in our first verse of the day. Verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. In response, the Lord promises action now. There was a delay which Moses did not understand, but taken in the context of the previous chapter, it is clear. The people weren't ready to be delivered. The officers over them had their allegiances tied to Pharaoh, not toward the people under them. Until they realized that they were no different, but instead needed the Lord, the affliction continued. This precept is found explicitly stated by Peter, who is writing to the Jews of the end times, and so the pattern fits perfectly. Here's what Peter says in his second epistle. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." Sure enough, he had withheld action until repentance was possible. There was a need to refine the people in preparation for the exodus. The account shows us that even after the exodus, many of the people continuously rebelled against the Lord. 
They had seen all of the wonders in Egypt, and yet their hearts continuously turned back to the land of Egypt at the slightest experience of discomfort. And we're going to see that in the many, many verses of the uh, book of Exodus. As this is so, how much worse would they have acted if the Lord had not allowed them time to more fully rely on him? It is the constant theme of the workings of the Lord. He does things at first which seem hard to understand, but later they become clear. This is why even on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, he had to tell his disciples to simply trust him. His words in John 13, verse 7 can be applied to his actions before the people here at the time of the Exodus. Here's what he said to them. What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. These same patterns keep coming up again and again in history. The ways of the Lord are perfect, and his timing is always exact in order to meet his intended purposes. Pharaoh would be dealt with, it would be now, and Moses would see it with his own eyes. Verse 1 continues, For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Some translations, like the one that I just read, which is New King James Version, make it seem that the strong hand that he is speaking of could be the hand of Pharaoh as he drives the people from the land. This is certainly not the intent. Rather, it is the work of the Lord which is being referred to here. The NIV translates this very clearly by saying it this way. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. It is a less literal translation, but certainly a more accurate one. The strong hand of the Lord on behalf of his people is seen time and time and time again in Scripture. A great parallel of this is found in Jeremiah. There, the Lord again promises to redeem the people and return them to the land of Israel. Here's what it says in Jeremiah. Now, think they're going to be redeemed out of the Egypt during the Exodus. He makes the same promise at this time, at the Babylonian uh, exile, and we're going to see the same thing in the end times. God is repeating himself. Here's what he said. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Same thing happened back then. It's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. Therefore, they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil. For the young of the flock and the herd, their souls shall be like a well-watered garden and they shall sorrow no more at all. Verse two, and God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. This verse follows the same pattern that was seen back in Exodus three, verse one. There it said, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush. In other words, the term God and Lord are used in the same verse. However, the translation is much, much better rendered as I am Yehovah instead of I am the Lord. Otherwise, when we get to the next verse, it's not going to have the same force and effect. As readers of English versions, the word Lord can be translated in many, many ways, but the name Jehovah can only mean one thing. For the most part, I have absolutely no problem with the name of Jehovah being translated as Lord, L-O-R-D, but there are times when clarity demands the name be given. And this is one of those times. He is declaring his name it is the same name that he gave at the burning bush, and it is a declaration to Moses that he will perform what he has spoken. It's all tied up in his name. Verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. What this means is that the way that God expressed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was as El Shaddai, or God Almighty. His words to them were words of covenant faithfulness and great fruitfulness. The title Jehovah wasn't actually unknown to them, but the full import and the weight of the name wasn't understood. It was a title back then, but now it is his name. He's revealed that to Moses for the first time. He has revealed it as more than just a title. It is who he is, his being, his name. As a name expresses behavior and being, it signifies that he is the existent one. It appears that the reason he waited until this time to finally reveal his name in this way was because of the idolatry and the polytheism which surrounded Israel and to which even Israel had fallen prey to. By now proclaiming himself as the existent one, he was revealing to them the truth that there is but one God and that he is it. No other God is a God, 
but is rather a false god. The Lord waited for over 2,500 years of human existence to reveal himself in this way for a reason. That reason is that this group of people is being prepared for an encounter with him where he will reveal his holiness to them. They will learn that this one true God has certain standards which he cannot compromise. In order for the world to learn this, he will use this group of people as an object lesson to learn from. Before that meeting takes place, however, this one true God will prove himself against the false gods of Egypt. The ten plagues on the ten false gods of Egypt are emblematic of the final destruction of all of the false gods in the world in the end times. Each step of how God reveals himself is taken with purposeful care. Verse 4, I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. It needs to be understood that the words and of promise here encompass everything from verse 2 to verse 8. God appeared to the fathers as El Shaddai, and he established the covenant with them. That covenant was to give them the entire land of Canaan, which was the land of their pilgrimage. They never possessed that land, but rather they lived there as strangers. God gave Abraham the reason why they could not possess the land at that time when he spoke to him, which was because the Amorites who lived there had not yet reached their full level of iniquity. In his grace, in his great grace to this Gentile group of people, he gave them 400 years before bringing in Israel to destroy them and to assume the land as their own. And before that would occur, Pharaoh and Egypt would be judged as well. But again, this is not only giving a historical account, but as a lesson of the work of Christ all the way through until the end times. God promised to never destroy the world again by flood, even though the inclination of man's heart is evil all the time. Instead, God will judge the world through the plagues of Revelation, and the land of Canaan will be where Christ returns to, he being the true Israel returning to the land of promise. Every story in the Bible is used to show us patterns of future history. The land of Israel is for the people of God. It is defiled by those who are unholy. And so may God's people in righteousness trod. When they enter his land, so may it be. Let all of God's people walk rightly each day. Let each of us be examples for others to see. In our actions, let us holiness display. And may justice spread out like the branches of a tree. This we petition and for this we pray. O oh God, let us always walk in your holy way. Our second thought today is, I have and I will, verses 5 through 9. In verse 5, the Lord will say, I have, twice. And then from verses 6 through 8, he will say, I will, seven times. The Lord is aware, and the Lord will perform. Verse 5, And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. This is almost a repetition of the thought which came at the end of Exodus 2. There, just before the account of Moses leading his flocks to Horeb, which, as you saw, was a picture of the rapture of the church, and which immediately followed by the account at the bush, it said this, Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. The Lord is giving Moses a full accounting of what has transpired, even from the time of Abraham until the time of his own calling. Moses asked why all the trouble had come upon the people since he arrived in Egypt, and he reminded the Lord that nothing had been done about it. Without explaining the reason directly, he has indirectly shown Moses that there is a time and that there is a place for everything, and that proper time has now arrived. Certain things had to happen, which Moses was unaware of, and he needed to trust that all was occurring as it should. It is an appeal to Moses to have faith. And we have that same appeal in our lives every single day. Things aren't going well, and we think, Lord, your word says this is going to happen, and it doesn't happen. As we see in our prophecy update week after week, is the Lord slack in his promises to us? Is it ever going to come about? And he's simply asking us to reach out our hands and say, I have faith that it is going to be okay. If the world comes against all of the true Christians and starts killing them before he comes at the rapture, we have to continue to have faith. This is what the Lord is asking Moses. This is what the Lord is asking us. Verse six, 
Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. The redemption or purchase of the people of Israel is mentioned for the very, very first time in this verse, and it will continue to be used all the way throughout Scripture. This is actually accomplished in two separate ways. The first is noted here in the great judgments of the Lord that he will perform. They will go from slavery to the Egyptians to being servants of God through these judgments. This is the first time that these judgments are also referred to. And the word will be used 16 times in the Old Testament. God will use such judgments both for and against Israel and others in the future as he deals with their sin. The second way Israel was to be redeemed is when they are led through the Red Sea and forever delivered from the death that pursued them. It is, in essence, being purchased anew. These two types of redemptive acts picture our own salvation by first being delivered from the power of the devil and then being delivered from the presence of sin. It is a pattern which Paul explains very carefully in the book of Romans. Finally, one more term is used in this verse for the very first time. It is the outstretched arm of the Lord. It is a term that will be used repeatedly concerning the Lord in the Bible after this, and it makes an obvious picture. When a man desires to show his strength or de defeat an enemy, he'll stretch out his arms. In this one stance, he will both defend some and work against others. This is what the Lord says that he will do with his outstretched arm. He will redeem Israel and he will destroy Egypt. Verse 7, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Later in Exodus verse nine, or chapter 19, there's a term that God is going to use of the people of Israel. It's the word segula. It's used to describe them as a peculiar possession who will belong to the Lord. He has taken them as his people in order to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. However, this idea of the Hebrews being a special possession to God does not in any way imply that he has abandoned the rest of the world or all of the other people on earth. Throughout the entire Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, before Christ's cross, people are noted as joining to God or being given special and particular favor by him. The selection of Israel is a demonstration of God's wisdom for a multitude of reasons. One was to have a people set aside to usher in the Messiah. Another was to show that a chosen people were set apart to live under God's standards and they were still unable to meet those standards. Through Israel, the world will learn two very important lessons. One, the law cannot save anyone. Instead, it only shows us how utterly sinful sin is. And two, it was used to show the world their absolute need for the Messiah, for the Christ, for Jesus, who was to come through this very people who proved these two points. In this selection of Israel to be God's people, he is fulfilling his promises, and he is also demonstrating what his name implies, which is that he will perform his spoken word. Their later unfaithfulness in no way negates his faithfulness. In fact, it only highlights it, as he has remained faithful to them all along. For the past 3,500 years, they've turned their neck to him. They've been disobedient to him. They've been exiled. He returns them. They've been exiled. He returns them. They still don't honor him. And yet he remains faithful to them. It highlights God's everlasting faithfulness. Verse 7 continues. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. In performing his word, the people will know that he is, in fact, the one he claims to be, and that he has done exactly what he said he would do. But again, there is the immediate understanding of these words, and there is the prophetic fulfillment of them. If these verses only pertain to Israel, then it would actually be a failure of the greater plan of redemption. Abraham's promise was one based on faith, and it was given long, long before he was circumcised. The pattern of being redeemed based on faith then must pertain to all people, and not just to Israel. It must ultimately be based on the work of the Messiah. And in this verse is a picture of that. Verses 6 and 7 contain the very last two uses in the entire Bible of the word sibla, which is translated as burdens. 
All six have been in the book of Exodus. This word, sibla, comes from another word, sabal. It is a word used to describe the work of the Messiah in Isaiah 53.4 and Isaiah 53.11. So I want to read you this. Isaiah 53.4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed, esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And then in Isaiah 53.11, it says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. This word sibla is being used for the very last time to show that the burdens are lifted in the work of the Lord. And so it is with Christ. The burden of our sins is taken from us when we call on him. Although these stories might seem distant and quaint, they are words that are right now and they are right near. They picture the eternal gospel which proclaims that the Lord, not our deeds, is what rescues us. I've carefully noted this unique word, sibla, in each account in which it was used, and now you know why. Our burdens are lifted in Jesus Christ, all pictured here at the Exodus. Verse 8, And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. The imagery of the Hebrew is much more exciting than this English translation. It says, Nasati et yadi, I have lifted my hand. Yes, to lift one's hand implies to swear, but many translations don't say, I have lifted my hand. They just simply say, I swear. And so we miss the action and the mental pictures which the Hebrew portrays. Three promises have now been given concerning what the Lord will do. The first is that he will deliver his people from bondage. The second is he will take the Hebrew people as his own, in essence, to adopt them. And the third is to bring them into the land of Canaan and to give them give it to them as a, a, a heritage. And this is true at the time of the Exodus, and it's true also at the end times, which Exodus pictures. But guess what? It's also true in the greater picture of the Lord and his church. We are those who have crossed over from death to life, which is what the term Hebrew implies. So let's see it from the New Testament. He has promised to deliver us from bondage to sin, which ends in death, and he has done it. This is found in Hebrews chapter 2. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He has also promised to adopt us as his people, and he has done it. Galatians chapter 4 says this, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And he has promised us heaven and it is accomplished. We are just waiting on its actualization. Here's what Ephesians 2 tells us. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespass, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, done deal, past tense, and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The Exodus story shows us history, but it also shows us the present with us in the church, and it also shows us the future. It is the continuing pattern of the Bible. That which has been will be. That which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. God repeats history, and he repeats these patterns so that we know that his hand is involved in what's going on. Verse 8 continues, I am the Lord. Ani Yehovah, I am Yehovah. My name is my guarantee. What I have said is inviolable because I am the existent one. My words cannot fail because I encompass time. What I have spoken is already performed and it's merely waiting for you and your present to catch up with that future where I already exist. Verse nine, so Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. The first time they heard the news from Moses, the Bible says that the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshiped. At that time, Moses presented to the people three signs which he was granted from the Lord. Those signs accompanied by the word of the Lord were all the people needed to believe. 
But the signs were forgotten, and the word lost its significance. Now instead of hope, they don't even heed. And the reason is because of the anguish of the spirit. In Hebrew, the words there are kotzer ruach, which is literally translated a shortness of spirit or a shortness of breath, has the same meaning. The suffering was so continuous and it was so burdensome that there wasn't time for the people to breathe, much less revive their spirits. It's an exacting picture of what could be expected in the end times. As the world falls apart, there will be few who will remember the promises of the Lord. But the Lord would ask for them to persevere even through the times of despondency. Where is your hope and in whom do you place your trust? What will you do when the world around you shatters? Place your hope in the Lord who is faithful and just. Abiding in his truth is, in the end, all that matters. To place your hope in man is like air passing through a vent. To place your hope in money is a terrible dark pit. When man has failed you and your money is all spent, what meaning is found in your life? Please don't do it. Instead, place your hope in the Lord, so I say, you will be found safe and secure for all eternity. Place your hope in the Lord, yes, do it today and then watch history unfold. Great things you will see. Our third thought is, who will heed the word of the Lord? It's our last three verses of the day, 10 through 13. Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, at times, verse numbers are given which don't seem to make any sense. And I do believe that all verse numbers are inspired by God. They're there for a reason. Why would it stop in the middle of a sentence and begin a new verse? Six other times in this chapter alone, this type of introduction is used, and all six of them contain a complete sentence. And the last time is in verse 28, which is a recap of this verse. And yet it isn't divided as this one is. Only this once is the sentence divided in two verses. So I thought about it, and I thought about it. Why would the Lord do this? What seems to be the reason is that it shows a contrast between what was just said and what is coming. The people of Israel didn't heed Moses in the last verse, and yet Moses is instructed to speak to Pharaoh in the next verse. The words, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, are given for our benefit. Everything that was spoken from verse 2 to verse 8 is what the Lord said. Verse 9 tells us that Moses repeated it to Israel, and they didn't heed. And now, without any other words between the directives, the next thing Moses will hear is another command to do something even more difficult than what he just did. Therefore, this portion of a sentence is more pertinently highlighted by being offset from the words to come, which are verse 11. Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. The last time Moses went before Pharaoh to speak the word of the Lord, he said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, no reason is given and no limitations on where they would go. None of them are made. Instead, it is a fixed demand to let them go out of his land. What becomes clear in this is that what the Lord said to Moses before he departed for Egypt, way back in Exodus 4, verse 21, he said this, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. The first visit to Pharaoh was just this mild request, which could have been easily granted. No signs were given, and no power was displayed before Pharaoh. By coming in this manner, the Lord has already hardened Pharaoh's arrogant heart to any future demands. Now when a demand rather than a request is made, it will certainly be met with greater resistance. And as the plagues come, they're going to come from lesser to greater plagues. Each step is calculated to only harden Pharaoh's heart further and thus magnify the work of the Lord. Unfortunately for Pharaoh, he should have been more lenient right at the beginning and saved himself from the wrath of God at the end. It is a valuable lesson for all people. As Ellicott says about this verse, if we refuse a light cross, a heavier cross is laid on us. If we will not close with the Sibyl on the first occasion, she offers us a worse bargain on the second verse 12. And Moses spoke before the Lord saying, the children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? The people of Israel had seen the signs of the Lord. They had been convinced once of the surety that their freedom was at hand. And yet they had forgotten those things and they were left in the shortness of their breath as their bondage continued. As this was so, and as both Moses and the Lord knew this, the question to the Lord is all the more pertinent. Certainly one who didn't believe the first time 
and who is both insolent and deaf to that command would respond even more negatively than those who had first openly welcomed his words. But this is exactly what was intended by the Lord. Moses had just failed to see it from the Lord's vantage point. Verse 12 continues, For I am of uncircumcised lips. In verse 410, Moses said he was slow of speech and slow of tongue. His words here expand on that. He says he is of uncircumcised lips. It is as if he has a foreskin over his mouth which hindered his tongue. It is a claim that his speech makes him unqualified to perform the duty that he is directed to perform. In Genesis chapter 17, any person who was uncircumcised was outside of the covenant of God. In Leviticus chapter 19, fruit which is unacceptable as fruit is considered uncircumcised. In Leviticus chapter 26, the hearts that are uncircumcised are hearts which are guilty before the Lord. And in Jeremiah 6 verse 10, an uncircumcised ear is one which will not heed the word of the Lord. To be, un, to be circumcised means to be right, to be acceptable, and to be pure. And so to be uncircumcised meant that his words would be considered impure and unacceptable. Because Aaron has already been assigned as his speaker, Moses has now gone further in his thoughts and he's made the assumption that even when he transmit what he transmits to Aaron is defiled. And thus it is the reason why both Israel and Pharaoh have rejected his words. Said differently, Moses is intimating that he has a defect which is actually a moral hindrance to the plans and the words of the Lord. His petition isn't because of fear of personal danger, but of being the cause of failure in what the Lord intended. It is the honor of the Lord that Moses is concerned about. This is exactly the same sentiment which is found in Isaiah chapter 6. Here's what it says there from Isaiah 6. In that year, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting high on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Like Isaiah, Moses had personally experienced the majesty of the Lord, and he had assumed that he had failed him. The command to speak to Pharaoh brought him to a new low, as he only contemplated more failure would come from him. He's concerned about the Lord's honor and the Lord's dignity. Verse 13 finishes with these words. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Without any prior introduction of Aaron in this account, and no mention of him since near the end of the previous chapter, he suddenly named in this verse. Moses spoke, the Lord heard, and the Lord acted. To show Moses that he is qualified for the task, he now speaks to both Moses and Aaron together. And he does it not just for speaking to the obstinate Pharaoh, but to the disheartened children of Israel. It is a command of both parties, and it is to be carried out. In both verse 11 and in this verse, Pharaoh is called the king of Egypt. And yet the title wasn't given in verse 1 or verse 12. Why would this be? The reason is that in verse 11 and here, the children of Israel are mentioned. In other words, there is a contrast which the Bible is asking us to see. Though Pharaoh is the king of Egypt, he is not the king of Israel. Thus, the title is specifically mentioned when they are mentioned. This follows perfectly with the idea of the kingdom of Christ in contrast to the kingdom of this world, which is ruled by the devil. This contrast is made between the two until the very final pages of the Bible when it says this in the book of Revelation. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Following little hints like the terminology used when speaking to Pharaoh shows us greater patterns of what God has done and what he continues to do in the world. Never be afraid to stop and think on these things because what may seem unimportant Never, never is. 
And what seems like a passing thought can often lead to the greatest of discoveries. So if you see something unusual, stop and think, why did God do this? Our verses for today have ended, and yet they continue on in our own lives from moment to moment. The picture of the Lord, Moses, and Israel, and their interactions with Pharaoh picture our own interaction with Christ and with the devil. If we remember that the eternal truths found in these ancient stories are given to remind us of that, they become all the more relevant to our own lives and the lives of those around us who still have not called on Jesus Christ. We are either under the rule and the authority of the devil in his world of sin, pictured by Pharaoh in the kingdom of Egypt, or we are under the rule and the authority of Christ. Someday, just like Egypt, this world will be destroyed through judgment. It's done deal. The word says it's going to happen. It is a done deal. Those who do not belong to Christ will be destroyed with it. If you've never made a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, I would ask you to stop rebelling and start yielding. Open your heart, open your eyes, and call out to him because he is mighty to save. Let me tell you how you can receive Christ even today. The Bible shows us with all certainty that it is the word of God. It demonstrates it perfectly. It proves that it is the word of God. And it tells us in that precious word that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. He's infinite. There is no sin and no unrighteousness in him. We're temporal. We're earthly. We're spiritual, we're unspiritual, and we're sold out under sin. And we can never have fellowship with this wonderful Lord because of the sin which separates us. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sin in our lives. And there are two, two types of death in the Bible. There's the physical death of the body and there is the spiritual death which separates us from God. And unless the spiritual death is corrected before the physical death comes, it will last for all of eternity. But God in his infinite mercy sent Jesus Christ into the world to live this law that he's going to give these people in a few short chapters. He lived it perfectly. He was born without sin. He lived without sin. And he gave his life up as an offering or an exchange for what we have done wrong. And when we call on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we move from the devil to Jesus Christ. We are now in him. We're clothed with his righteousness and now we can fellowship once again with this eternal God who we could not fellowship with before. All because of the work of another. No works involved on our part. And then after that, what the Lord would ask you to do is to live for him. Live holy, live honestly, and do works which are honoring of him. But don't get that in front. That comes later. There is no work we can do in advance. All we need to do is call out to Jesus to save us. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Done deal. Call on Christ today. Be forgiven of your sins and live that life that you are now granted to live free from the power of sin. Our closing verse today comes from Psalm 65. It's the 22nd verse. Cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Isn't that wonderful words? Next week is uh, Exodus 6. It's verses 14 through 30. We're actually completing an entire chapter in only two sermons. It's very interesting, and I would ask you to read that chapter and think, why did God put those verses that are coming up, 14 through 30? All of a sudden, there's this genealogy. It just springs up in the middle of a chapter. You've got this narrative, and all of a sudden, the genealogy ends, and the narrative continues. Why did God do that? And why did he choose to do it there? This is entitled The Family of Moses and Aaron, and that'll be our 17th Exodus sermon. And I'll remind you before we have our uh, poem today and before we have some birthday cake for my beautiful wife, that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. Exactly. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. And even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part those waters and he can lead you through them on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things both for you and through you if you just simply allow him to. Our poem today, they don't know this, but every week I take all of the verses that we've looked at and I put them into a poem form. And I do that so that you hear them read, you hear them analyzed, and then you hear them read again in a way that maybe you'll remember. Okay? I will rescue and I will redeem. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. With a strong hand, he will let them go. And God spoke to Moses this word and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. 
to their eyes, this is how I was shown. But by my name, Lord, to them I was not known. I have also established my covenant with them to give them of Canaan the land, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers beforehand. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant as well. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out. From under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will rescue you from their bondage, no doubt. And I will redeem you, I will not hesitate, with an outstretched arm and with judgments great. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God who brings you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. This is my sure word. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob too, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. This I will certainly do. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. This is what being disheartened does. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, go in, tell Pharaoh, Egypt's king, to let the children of Israel, as I am relaying, go out of this land, tell him to do this thing. And Moses spoke before the Lord saying, the children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? I am praying, for I am of uncircumcised lips, as you already see. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, the land. Once again, the words have been carefully selected to show us of the great work of the Lord. In each word and in each verse can be detected greater pictures found in his superior word. Oh God, with such attention and such care, how could we quickly pass through without careful note when you have been so meticulous everywhere and in your word you did your wisdom upon us dote. Grant us hearts that desire to see every detail. Grant us eyes that can see your precious son. Even if we have to go as slow as a snail, let us not miss a thing, no, not even one. Thank you for this wonderful book and all the joy it reveals to us. Remind us daily to open it and upon its pages look and to seek out there our precious Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, I thank you for the wonderful story that you've given us. And verses that don't even seem to really have any import suddenly come alive when we look at the details and we see how desperately you love humanity to set up this plan to redeem Israel from bondage as a picture of a greater redemption of us from the world of sin. And you defeated Pharaoh with your great and mighty acts of judgment and you defeated the devil right there at the cross of Calvary. And that is open to all of us. Every single one of us can, if we simply bow our knee, be reconciled to you through his shed blood. What an opportunity. What a gift. I would pray that many would receive it. I would pray that many would go out and tell others about it and not be ashamed to proclaim this wonderful word and to hold fast to the truths of the Bible, even in this world which is so quickly devolving into absolute wickedness. I just cannot believe how we have rejected your word, how we have rejected your authority, and we're turning away so quickly. Oh, Lord, whatever it takes to turn this nation back to you, whatever, I would pray that it would occur so that our hearts would be humbled and that we would once again call on you as a people. But your will be done. If it's not meant to be, we as people will continue to proclaim you until you come for us. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you, your greatness and your majesty and your outstretched arm how we love you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. We get the uh, words of the uh, Lord's Supper from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, right from the hand of Paul. He was certainly given some of these instructions personally because they vary from uh, the accounts in the Bible. And so it's something that was probably very personal to Paul as he wrote these words. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and he would have given thanks over that bread. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed this as well. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this table. Thank you for the remembrance of the cross of Jesus Christ. And thank you that that was not the end of the story, but that he rose to, new, to, he rose to live again by the power of God and through the power of the resurrection. And that we have the absolute sure hope because we are in Christ, that we too will rise again some wondrous day. And may that day be really soon. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. amen.